electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Coming up on Fast, beware of the biotech breakout. That is a message from one top analyst why he says the race for a coronavirus cure could turn into a race for the exits. Plus, Facebook breaking out to new all-time highs, and one of our traders says it is not too late to friend this name. We'll bring you that trade. And we're all over the big after-hours move in Aurora. Cannabis will tell you what's got that pot stock flying high right now. We start off with stocks climbing today, all 11 S&P sectors finishing in the green, but there could be a big risk to the rally bubbling up. Check out what happened to Chinese tech stocks today as Congress seems to be turning up the heat on China. Let's get to Kayla Tashi with all the details. Kayla. Melissa, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act technically applies to any non-U.S. company that is listed here. It requires those companies to be subjected to an audit by a division of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and if not, to certify that it is not owned or controlled by a foreign government. Any company that cannot prove that would be dislisted. Here's John Kennedy, the Republican senator from Louisiana who sponsored this bill. I do not want to get into a new Cold War. All I want, and I think all all the rest of us want, is for China to play by the rules. Anti-China sentiment has been gaining steam in recent years. It did not subside even after that phase one trade deal was reached in January. And this particular issue of transparency has gained new momentum after the fraudulent financial disclosures at Luckin Coffee just last month. And earlier this month, the White House and the Labor Department directed a board that invests retirement money on behalf of federal employees to refrain from investing money in certain indexes that have Chinese stocks in them, calling that a matter of national security. And Melissa, as for this particular bill, it still requires passage in the House and a signature from the president to become law. And given that it was first introduced early in 2019, it's unclear exactly what the time frame for that is. But it's clear there's a lot of bipartisan support. Mm. Melissa? Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Well, J.P. Morgan's Mark Kalanovich writing today, as the virus risk is abating globally, politically, political slash geopolitical fallout is emerging as a new risk. And specifically, this is what he writes, for example, just today, the U.S. Senate passed a bill to bar Chinese companies from being listed on U.S. exchanges. So more widely, while we have been recognizing uh, China-U.S. tensions as a political um, stumbling uh, block for the markets here, J.P. Morgan is coming out saying this could be a real issue. Tim, I go to you. In terms of the trade that we saw in, in Chinese Internet stocks, can you walk us through why some got hit harder than others? Alibaba, for instance, emerged relatively unscathed compared to a JD or a Baidu. 
Yeah, because I, I think if you look at the disclosure and, and the approach that Alibaba has taken to their international accounting standards, I, I think they're different. And, and I think um, Alibaba, which traded down on the news, ended up rallying back almost 3% off of those intraday lows. Alibaba reports uh, fiscal uh, Q4 later this week, I think on Friday. Um, and I think those numbers are going to be really solid. I, I think this theme uh, may appear to be a trade war theme kind of hangover. But I, I think this theme is something that's been front and center for a long time. I think the SEC's ability to, to actually investigate uh, Chinese companies listed in the United States and actually look at their balance sheets and, and get follow through from the Chinese government and from these companies themselves has, has been a, 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 a challenging issue for them for a long time. Um, the NASDAQ we saw is actually putting uh, more restrictions on Chinese uh, companies going to IPO in the U.S. and actually limiting uh, the, a minimum size, for example, which will actually uh, also, I think, bring... Uh, more credible and just, you know, entities that actually have more scale. So I, I think um, separating the haves from the have-nots here is not terribly uh, easy, but, but I, I do think with companies like Alibaba and Tencent, I, I think the standards there, these are companies that went on uh, global roadshows, but certainly Alibaba for a long time and were, were basically put through the ringer by investors and lawyers and compliance folks to actually deliver uh, a platform that actually stood up to this type of rigor. Um, what the U.S. is asking for is what the U.S. effectively asked for from every company. Uh, and therefore, I think this is very important and I think it's something that will continue. This is, in theory, very good for U.S. investors, right? I mean, Congress wants and the Nasdaq wants listed companies from other countries to follow U.S. accounting rules. Better for U.S. investors, better for transparency. And yet, in the context of the world we live in, Guy Adami, this is going to be seen as the latest barb being trade between U.S. and China, the U.S. And, and China. Yeah, and it's and, and with that said, you know, here we are with the S and P five hundred, basically three thousand, twelve percent off its all time high that we saw in February. The Nasdaq's within a whisper of an all time high. You have a bunch of stocks that we'll talk about making new all time highs, and nobody seems to care. And to your point, yeah, listen, everything going on with China, uh, maybe it's deserved. Maybe we needed to have those trade talks. Maybe the Chinese had been ripping us off for years. I, I'm not disputing any of that. What I've been saying, though, is there has to be ramifications. And now with this latest, I think it's a big deal, coupled with the fact that, you know, this administration, rightly or wrongly, is looking for a scapegoat for the coronavirus, and it's going to be the Chinese. There are ramifications for that. And if we want to bring everything back to the United States, again, wonderful. There are ramifications for that. So the fact that the market doesn't seem to care in terms of the basically the S&P 500, the Nasdaq, is, um, a, is very interesting to me. I understand the Fed. I get all that. But we're looking past something that could be extraordinarily uh, destructive in the months to come. Karen, what do you make of this latest development uh, in the context of what we've seen in the markets today, which is a, a rally? Right. Well, um, I actually do own by, by Alibaba, so I was a little bit uh, concerned when I saw that. And I thought, oh, Alibaba is safe. You know, as Tim said, they went through a very vigorous process. But I did want to check that they do have a, a world-class auditor, just to be sure, which they do, Pricewaterhouse. Um, so ultimately, I think it's a good thing. I think, though, if it happens, I mean, I was surprised it was unanimous in the Senate. If this actually comes to pass... In the short term, it's going to be a bad thing for some of those stocks, obviously. But um, I agree with, uh, with Guy also. I think it's just, um, 
increasing the tensions so um, you know that China becomes the bad guy and as he said I think they're looking for a scapegoat all that having been said though I'm very surprised the market went up as strongly as it did today on on I don't know what I don't know why it went up Dan Nathan is it a coincidence that we saw fresh highs in a lot of the US internet stocks while we saw the sell-off in Chinese internet stocks or is that just two things that happen to happen on the same day I think they happen on the same day. I think it's pretty interesting that, you know, when you think about the U.S. Internet stocks, how little exposure that most of them have in China because of regulation. And I think that this is one uh, move by the SEC and by our exchanges here that is going to get very, very little pushback. If anything, the Chinese companies that want to list here for a whole host of reasons, um, you know, they should face the, the same scrutiny that U.S. companies do. Um, but I can't help but just, you know, kind of string it all together a little bit with some of the stuff that all the other guys and gals are saying about this timing. I mean, listen, we are clearly making a stronger case against China, whatever the reasons are. I think that is bipartisan. I think there's a lot of people feel like we should take them on on a lot of different things. Um, I guess my bigger issue right now is about the global economy, the pace of the recovery. China's recovery is going to be really, really slow. And when you think about this economy that's going to go from 6% GDP growth to negative in, in just such a short period of time, and what that's going to take to get back up to even high single digits, that is going to be a weight on the, the neck of the global economy for some time. You know, I just feel like that we need to figure out how to better cooperate globally because deglobalization, the biggest theme of the last 20 years, is coming undone. And there's going to be massive, massive economic ramifications for that. And I think that U.S. companies have dramatically benefited from globalization. And I think just the market is not discounting any disruption to supply chains and deglobalization right now. So the reshoring move. A, a reshoring move could, in fact, hurt S&P 500 companies. Tim, I mean, would, you, would you agree? Because that it does look like we are moving slowly towards that eventual end. If we're talking about bringing back critical components for defense products or for uh, technology or for drugs back to the United States, that's at a cost, obviously. Yeah, I, look, I don't know how great this is going to be for Apple. I mean, this is something we've debated over and over and, and in terms of their, their supply chain and, and the component makers. And, and, uh, and yes, some of this can be done, but, but I think it's, it's crazy to expect it all to happen. And I think it would be terribly inefficient. So let me stand on the side of saying, yeah, I, I get the fact that we want to control supply chains. I get the fact that I, I stand in line with people that want to push back on China on a number of issues, um, not categorically. Um, but but I think this is easier said than done, which I, I believe is what Dan is talking about. Um, I, I, I just think that, you know, let's let's just the, the key focus for me is that U.S. markets are the deepest, most transparent in the world. And they are for a reason um, that there is regulatory uh, infrastructure around you know, the way our markets trade, the way companies have to be accountable, disclosure, transparency. This is ultimately good for Chinese companies if they can list in this environment. And I think any company in the world sees that environment and says this is the place where really I will exact the greatest multiple. Um, those that don't want to play ball here um, clearly can't and won't. And, you know, there have been some high-profile IPOs in the last year. Uh, obviously, Saudi Aramco, you know, I mean, there, there are places where people choose to play or not to play. Uh, but ultimately, it's good for companies as well as investors. All right. Our next guest says this market rally has even more room to run. Let's bring in J.P. Morgan's Phil Camporelli. Phil, great to have you with us. Hey, welcome back, Melissa. Good talking to you again. Thank you, Phil. Great to be back. Um, in terms of, of the market going 
of go, the market going higher. What's, what's going to drive this? And are you factoring in at all a, a resumption or an increase in U.S.-China relations? Tensions, yeah, that's a good question. Say. Yeah, this has been, that's a good question, Melissa. This has been an incredibly emotional and confusing market environment for the past couple of months, even for the most tenured investors, right? I mean, the unemployment rate has gone from a 50-year low to an 80-year high in just two months. And one out of every four trading days, this market has gone, gone plus or minus 3% in a day. I mean, that's exhausting, right? And we're also sitting on top of the second best 40-day stretch in market history. The reason why I think that you can continue to press higher is because there are very important technical reasons to continue to like the market. Um, there's $5 trillion right now sitting in money market funds. This time last year, that was $3 trillion. Speculators and futures on the S&P 500 are the shortest since 2016. Remember those Brexit days and the November election. But really what we're doing, Melissa, is, is taking our cues from, from financial conditions. Um, if March 23rd ends up being the bottom, uh, it'll get remembered like March 9th gets remembered in 2009. But really it was what the Fed said that day. Yes, the market bottom on March 23rd, but what the Fed did that day was announce their corporate credit facilities. And everybody thought, okay, maybe this will help fixed income and corporate credit. But what that did in terms of improving things like LIBOR, the VIX, the VIX is below 28 now. Credit spreads have come materially tighter in. Well, so all that is feeding upon the strong technicals in the S&P. The other thing is the S&P 500 has a yield of, I don't know, about 2.2% right now mm -hmm. versus the 10-year Treasury at 70 basis points. We've never seen that before. So you add on top of all the technicals, and I always say, things don't move by 30% in 40 days because everyone is investing. Unless those technicals start to change, Melissa, which we don't see changing anytime soon, right. dips should be bought here. So I want to get back to the money sitting on the sidelines because I feel like we hear that a lot. So you're saying that, yep. that over the past year, money sitting on the sidelines in money market accounts has increased by $2 trillion. Uh, to the best of your knowledge, Phil, who is the primary owner of these money market accounts? I'm just trying to understand whether or not the holder mm -hmm. of these accounts, if they're hoarding cash because they're concerned, and so therefore that cash may sit on the, those sidelines for much longer until we have a better grip on how this is all going to play out. Yeah, Melissa, that's a good question. The slope of that line really steepened uh, in February and March of this year. So that looks to us like it's a retail-like flow, right, where, where Main Street has flown to the sidelines. They've run for the hills. And that's less the case in institutional space where folks stay rebalanced and they continue to add like they did at the end of the first quarter. But that's, that's a FOMO trade like I've never seen before, right? And, and I think... That's going to, and it's so expensive to sit on the sidelines because cash rates are zero. And if you want to go to government bonds, they're at 70 basis. Like, where are you going to go? And that's why the improvement in things like LIBOR and credit spreads. And even the fact that companies like Live Nation and companies like Cruise Lines have been able to issue debt in this market is an important bridge loan for these companies. The Fed has, has, has been absolutely heroic and creative. And I think that, they're, that that corporate credit facility is going to go down in history of one of the most important things they've ever done. All right. So you dropped your equity allocations by 20 percent in March. I'm curious, when did you yep. drop? When in March did you drop it? Because it's a pretty, pretty critical time to decide to drop your equity allocations, to, you know, depending on when you did it. Yep. If it was before the yeah, dip so, or after the dip right. or, or what? 
Yeah, that's 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 a critical question there, Melissa. So uh, this was towards the, the middle of February when it was clear to us. Remember when Apple came out and Apple was like, okay, this is more than a supply side issue. We may not be able to get the demand. This was so this was towards the middle of February that we started to drop our equity uh, equity allocation. And we started adding back the Friday before the March 23rd low for the reasons of, okay, now we have a Federal Reserve that's committed to avoiding the worst-case scenario, which is a run on cash. Mm-hmm. We have a totally bipartisan wartime spending initiative from Congress. The CARES Act passed 96 to nothing. And then uh, the third thing was the fact that, you know, there was a major rebalancing that was going to occur at the end of the uh, first quarter. Right. So we started to add back then, and then we've slowly been adding back uh, to get to a neutral allocation. But I want to be clear here, Melissa. There are plenty of fundamental headwinds that we're going to face. Okay. It's really hard to get to an overweight without more clarity on that. And we would agree with some of the comments you were making in terms of the U.S.-China relationship, especially heading into the election. But right. the other thing that we know is that if the market sells off, you know, you tend, those, those relations tend to, get, tend, to get, tend to improve. Okay. Phil, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Phil Camparelli, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I think that's important to be clear. Even though Phil sounded extremely bullish all throughout the interview, he is not overweight equities at this point, Dan. And I, I think that that's very important to walk away with, that, that you can be constructive here because of the, what you're seeing in the markets, but not be, you know, pounding the table. Yeah, I, listen, the price action is hard not to be constructive about. The S&P 500 is getting back to a level um, you, know, you know, near 3,000, where if you look at it, the 200-day moving average right there, it was the level it broke out in late October. I am not getting constructive on equities here because of the, the last point that he made about the headwinds going forward. Yes, there were many actions taken by the Fed that will be in history deemed to be historic. But maybe that's because we have historic levels of unemployment that are going to take years and years to kind of work off. And the the fact is that we have our consumer-led economy and our consumer is going to be constrained for some while. So listen, you know, I've been wrong for the last month and a half. But the stock market, the S&P 500, has been trading between 2,800 and 2,950 or 60 or so. How wrong is that when one day could put you back at the low end of the range or the high end of the range? I do not expect a breakout in a meaningful way anytime soon because a lot of this stimulus and assistance has been front end loaded. And it doesn't seem like there is tremendous demand for more of that in Washington right now. So Mm -hmm. uh, the way I see it is this. Listen, the economy sucked last year. If you take out the Fed cuts and you take out the QE in the fall, you know, yes, the stock market, what did it do? It got risk assets going higher. But without that, we just did not have a great economy. Now the economy is really bad. The stock market is down 8% on the year. I just don't see it as a great spot to get back into equities. One last point about all that cash on the sidelines that's getting in right now. Any bad news in the next few weeks, next few months, that's going to act as, as like an accelerant to the downside because those people are going to be, that stock is going to be in very weak hands, in my opinion. All right, coming up, a take two takedown. We'll tell you what got this gaming stock pulling back from record highs, plus a big quarter for lows, but shares struggled for gains today. What is next for this stock? Stick around and find out. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, 
The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Take Two. Josh Lipton's got all the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, if you dig into this uh, report, listen, on the segments, digital online was a beat. Physical retail was a beat. Q1, the forecast they're given for bookings ahead of uh, analyst expectations handily. For the year, though, bookings are calling for uh, between 2.55 and 2.65 billion. That was a bit uh, light there. Analysts were looking for 2.7 billion. Some interesting commentary here from the company saying that fiscal 2021 will be, they see, uh, say, a light year for new releases, though they do say they expect to deliver strong results. It was interesting on the call, CEO Strauss Zelnick um, talking about some of his marquee franchises. Uh, Grand Theft Auto 5 sales, he said, surpassed expectations. The big question for investors is when Grand Theft Auto 6 is coming. Uh, Oppenheimer's Andrew Erkowitz tells me he's still betting that's a 2022 event. Uh, the trailer, though, he thinks likely hits in the next 12 months. That would be significant, he says. He thinks that game adds 3 to $4 in EPS. Now, on the call, that stock was higher, and executives began to give some color on, on their long-term pipeline. Executives saying they have 93 titles planned for release over the next five years. They say 47 are from existing franchises, 46 are new. You saw this big reversal in the stock. I was just uh, messaging back and forth with Michael Pactor of Wedbush. He says it was that uh, color on the pipeline that was really the problem. He says um, investors simply wanted more specifics, more visibility and color, not just numbers. And he thinks people were disappointed by that. That specifically said people really wanted to know that GTAA, Grand Theft Auto, was definitively coming in 2022, and Pactor says they did not provide that. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lifton, and we saw Take-Two moving lower in the after-hour session, basically giving back what it gained today, which hit a new, t- new all-time high in today's session. So, Guy, you've been on this for a while, positive. So what do you do here? Yeah. Well, I mean, the stock was a $100 stock in that March low. I mean, so it's up 50 at one point, I guess, north of 150, obviously up 52, 53%. I mean, the quarter, was, the quarter in and of itself was very good. I think people were sort of troubled by the guidance to Josh's point. What do you do? I think you look for an opportunity to buy it again. And I'm not saying it's getting there. However, if you're looking for that level, it comes in the form of that, that previous all-time high from September of 2019, I think around 132. So if this thing were to sell off on the back of a, back of a you know, broader market sell-off, 132 is the level to get back in, Mel. This is one of those stay-at-home stocks, right? Higher engagement because people are at home gaming, like Tim. He's got a setup behind him there. Um, Tim, what, what would you do here with totally. the stock versus totally. others? I, I would be gaming. Away. I mean, Grand Theft. Are you kidding me? I mean, that that's how you kill these hours, Mel. But if you think about this stock that, that guy talked about the move into these numbers, look, year over year, net bookings on recurring revenues are up 47 percent. I mean, this is a really strong number and a valuation uh, that, that, that actually got a lot cheaper over the last year, obviously not over the last two months, but um, a valuation in the kind of the upper 20s that still makes sense. Yes, I think you're a buyer of any week this year. I think these trends are not just these are not just COVID-19 trends. And, 
you know, the, the gaming stocks uh, uh, and I think all all interactive online gaming is is the way of the future. It's a secular trend. A lot of these stocks have spent they spent two years putting in tops and then basing and are now breaking out again. This is not a time to run from these stocks. All right. Let's stick with earnings here. Lowe's tumbling today despite reporting an 11 percent jump in same store sales last quarter. Jim Cramer just sat down with Lowe's CEO Marvin Ellison. Here's what he said about his customer base. They had projects that were delayed but not canceled. And so now we're seeing their book of business fill back up. They're starting back to be busy again. And in a lot of cases, we're the sole provider from a product standpoint for those small customers. We have great credit terms we offer them. We give them flexibility in delivery and all types of flexibility around service models. So believe it or not, the good news is that customer is starting to come back, and that is a sign that hopefully this is not going to be a elongated recession. You can catch that full interview, plus a huge lineup of guests coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. So let's, let's trade lows here, and obviously we got Target out as well today. But Do It Yourself um, really drove a lot of lows uh, quarter, Karen. Um, I know you're a big do-it-yourselfer. <laughs> I say that sarcastically, <laughs> um, but I do think that you change the art no, behind you on a daily myself. basis. So, so you are you are a very I handy do. person. I do. Um, yeah. What would you make of Lowe's versus like I a am. Home Depot? Well, I thought uh, that that both of them were great. I thought they both uh, had really good quarters. Um, Ellison had some interesting things to say about this quarter. Not he doesn't feel that that's pulling demand from the next quarter. So that's a positive. The only thing not to like about, um, actually, there was nothing to not like about the release except that the stock had run from 65 to this morning, I think it opened at 122, and it just couldn't sustain that gain. And there's nothing they did wrong. I mean, they're doing everything right, and I think they're, at at the same time as COVID, they also were in the middle of an operational turnaround that seems to be bearing fruit. So... Good for them. I mean, we saw Home Depot's numbers were very good also, but the bar was just too high, which gets us to Target, which also had an extremely high bar. Those were outstanding numbers. But we talked about this yesterday on the heels of Walmart, even though those numbers were great. You know, I thought Target had sort of gotten a little bit ahead of itself, that it was pricing in a lot of great stuff. And they did deliver. The bar was very high. They did deliver, but the stock just was too far ahead of itself. At what level, Karen, would you consider buying? I wouldn't sell them. You, did, I would buy back. Say, I would buy Target back, probably 115. 115. Okay, because you sold into earnings. What? Dan? Yeah, Lowe's is a great example of a, of a really great company. Um, the CEO said it himself that they were one of very few places to, for consumers to go to for the sort of products they were looking for during this lockdown. But look at the last three months of this stock. And Karen just said it. The stock pre-pandemic was trading 125. It went down to 60 in the March lows, and it opened today at 122. I mean, that's just completely out of control, it makes little sense. Investors have no idea what they were doing on the downside, and they have no idea what they're doing on the upside, and they really just don't know what's going to come in the next few quarters. So to me, I think it makes sense to kind of curb your enthusiasm for some of these stocks that have had crazy, crazy volatility in a short period of time. Let's get a better sense for the consumer. Let's get a better sense for where unemployment settles, and then you can kind of get into some of these secular stories about Karen fixing stuff up around her uh, Long Island home out there. Tim, you're shaking your head vigorously, so I do want to get your comment in. 
Well, I mean, I, you know, I never shake my head vigorously at Dan. Um, sometimes it's just the conversation we're having. And, and I think, you know, the, the trends on do-it-yourself are not ones that are going to go away. Um, Karen pointed out fundamentals that are bottom-up related to lows that have been going on, some reinvestment. Uh, look, their online business, and I realize we all saw uh, a lot of companies have reported, but that was up 80% year over year. Um, so the comp sales were up 12.3%, which blew away the numbers that any, even the most bullish on Wall Street had expected. So really this company's think, doing more than do, just getting really something right in terms when, of the, the, the time. When people are not working from home anymore and they're going to the office and they're, they're going to, you know, nine to five, whatever their job hours are, guy, that you're still going to be looking to regrout your shower and, and you know, hang up some pictures and, <laughs> and do your deck over again? I mean, do you have time to do that? I mean, are those trends really that lasting? I love the do-it-yourself stuff. I mean, the first thing I did was go out and bought a tool belt, and I walked around the house with it with a hammer on the side just in case you never know when you need the use of a whoa, hammer. And whoa. I bought a circular saw whoa. just because why not? I mean, everybody needs a circular saw. But to your point, I think the trends at a certain point abate. The real comment is what Karen said and then Dan reiterated. Stock went from 125 to 60, 60 to 120, and now here we are. So where do you try to buy it back? I think you look for like 95 level, which would make sense on a number of different metrics. Listen, Lowe's has closed the gap between them and Home Depot in a meaningful way. But the stock rallied 100 percent off the lows. I think you got to look for a pullback here. All right. Coming up of mice and guinea pigs. We'll tell you what got shares of this biotech stock surging today and why one top analyst calls it a cautionary tale for investors. And later, a $40 million deal sending shares of Aurora Cannabis soaring after hours. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of drug maker Innovio, jumping as much as 16% at its highs today. Why, you ask? Well, the company released preliminary data from an incomplete phase one trial that showed promising results for its experimental coronavirus vaccine. The research was done on mice and guinea pigs. Now, Inovio is just the latest biotech stock to see a huge swing on the back of COVID-related drug news. Here to discuss is Jeffrey's biotech analyst, Michael Yee. Michael, always great to have you with us. Great, thanks. We've seen this, I feel like, time and time again. Um, for Inovio's case specifically, this was actually a re-release of data that was presented in March, and this is incomplete data, and this is data that was uh, gathered through research done on animals. So can you sort of contextualize this for us, Michael? Should we be yeah. um, putting faith in some of these companies that are releasing incomplete phase one data? 
So I think uh, it's great to be here. I think there's two things uh, you know the audience should be aware of. Uh, one is that you're seeing a lot of companies put out a lot of information and trying to get into the the COVID news flow and get the stock going, um, and that's fine. But you know, two is you need to be aware of what we're talking about, which is this is super early, very early data, either in animals, in some cases uh, here, or you know another company which was moving uh, Sorrento last week, which was you know, in assays and test tubes, not even in animals, and that stock was moving. So, uh, you know, we are flagging some caution, got to be aware of what's going on here, all very early stage stuff, and um, be, be wary. Um, for, for these two companies, Moderna, which of course has been in the news a whole lot, especially this week, Michael, as well as Inovia, these are two companies that have not actually brought any products <coughs> to market. Um, and for Moderna, Moderna, they've actually failed or dropped at least six assets so far. For Inovio, as I understand it, according to a short report that I read by Citron Research, so I, I do want to say we take this with a grain of salt, but they highlighted the fact they've gone through press releases for past data releases of, of you know, early stage data. And in every single release, they use the same terminology, robust data. This is robust data, robust results. And nothing so far has come to market. Nothing has come from those robust results, Michael. So uh, at what point as a biotech analyst do you say, you know what, I, don't, I just don't believe what these companies are saying? Well, I think there is uh, the important point to, to uh, again, remember is that some of these smaller biotech companies um, not necessarily, you know, we'll put Anovio to the side, but just in general, some of these buckets of different companies we just mentioned, which are putting out, you know, very promotional material and commentary around this to, to get into the so-called COVID game, get the stock moving. You know, I think, again, word of caution because of what we actually have on, on our hands here versus people getting too exuberant uh, and just saying, wow, that sounds really good, that sounds really good, and the stocks are moving. I would put Moderna in somewhat of a different bucket in the sense that, you know, they did have between 8 to 45 humans, you know, that were tested with the vaccine generating antibodies. That is very positive, and they'll move forward. To what degree that should be valued, I think, is a separate question. Um, I also wanted to ask you in your most recent note, you highlighted the fact that there does seem to be flows finally into the biotech sector. And we're looking at an IBB now that's only a few dollars off of its all time high hit earlier this week, Michael. So in your opinion, what is driving these flows uh, at this point? It does seem to be covid related. I mean, the interest in biotech has grown during this pandemic. Yeah. Well, I think there's uh, a couple short-term things that continue to make us positive. Uh, one is that, you know, overarching theme that drug pricing rhetoric has definitely moved to the side. I'm going to go out on a limb here maybe and say I don't think we're going to see any real drug pricing legislation at all until we certainly have a COVID vaccine on our hands. So I don't think there's any messing with these companies or the industry anytime soon. Uh, and that's positive, and that was moving even before COVID. And the second thing I do think I would say from a trading perspective, I expect the XBI to maybe consolidate here a little bit around 100, but generally move higher during the course of the year, you are going to continue to see probably perceived positive COVID data, whether that some of this vaccine data continue positive uh, Moderna news, Regeneron COVID data, J&J Pfizer vaccine data coming soon. I think all that moves the XBI a little bit higher. And I think the trend is your friend here with the XBI uh, uh, through the second half of the year. And just quickly, uh, Michael, on, on Moderna specifically, do you see this market valuation being supported by even the, let's say they come to market with this vaccine, do we even know if they're going to make money on this? Yeah. Well, the, the great debate uh, certainly is how much money they could make, how much they could charge, and, you know, do other vaccines on their platform work, all of which I think is the 
uh, equation we're all trying to put together here. Uh, in the short to medium term, I think, again, valuation aside, people see continued positive Moderna data coming out, right? There's more data coming, more antibody data. Mm-hmm. And I think people want to have a glass half full view of all these things. And so these stocks could continue to move higher along that XBI trend. All right, Michael, always great to speak with you. Thank great. you so much. Thanks, Michael Jeff. Yee of Jefferies on biotech, retail-driven inflows to this biotech sector, Guy Adami. And I think Michael strikes the right, I mean, we as humans and people who are going through this pandemic, we want to believe in Moderna. We really want to believe that they are on the cusp of finding this vaccine, as well as all the other companies out there for that matter. At the same time, as an investor, you think what when you see all these releases? Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, 20 years ago, companies used to put dot com at the end of their name for the same reasons that appears as though a lot of these companies are now getting into the COVID space. And you're right. You want to believe. Absolutely. You want to believe without question. Uh, But you look at Citron's note about Novio. I mean, 40 years of robust data without a product, two dollar price target. So, you know, sort of be careful. You, You really have to be careful with these names. Obviously, Moderna had a nice move back to the upside today. I think it was 67 at one point last night, and there's clearly hope there. But again, getting back to biotech specifically, this space was on the move long before uh, coronavirus was a thing. I think this is a space you want to continue to stay with on the upside. If you are skeptical, though, Dan, of some of these COVID-related names and some of the COVID-related pops that we've seen in these names, would you want to be a buyer still of IBB here, even though that breakout started pre-pandemic? Yeah, I don't really think so. I mean, listen, I think you make a great point, Mel. We all want to be optimistic about vaccines and about therapies, but the likelihood of us being disappointed with the stocks where they are right now is probably pretty great, and especially the point, and I thought that was a great guess, the point he made about the retail flows. It's an easy one for a lot of people sitting at home to get their arms on and be um, optimistic about. I look at the IBB, which doesn't have the exposure to Moderna and some of those smaller names are not in the same way. It's exposed to some of the larger um, biotechs, and I see a massive double top uh, going back to 2015. And it looks like a really good opportunity for those looking to kind of pick on the market a little bit and pick some shorts. I think you could have had a buy the rumor, sell the news scenario in some of these large cap biotechs that are not as exposed, let's say, to the vaccines um, for the coronavirus. Karen, your thoughts on the space in general right now? Well, I think your point about uh, you, the question you asked about what's it worth? Let's say you let's say they do come up with it. What's it worth? It's the most desired product on the planet. And yet the pressure to price it as low as possible at just cost um, is enormous. Right. It's worth a lot of goodwill. I, so I, but I don't know what that's pricing in already in the stock. So it, these kind of names just the, up the, like this are way out of my league. They're too too. Too volatile. Can't can't be involved. Coming up, we got more on Moderna. Why options traders see a lot more volatility ahead for this name. But first, shares of Facebook surging to an all-time high. And you won't believe how much one analyst thinks its latest project could be worth. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook shares topping the tape today and breaking out to new all-time highs. The move comes after Facebook rolled out its new e-commerce feature, Shops. Analysts at Deutsche Bank say Shops could drive $30 billion in annual revenue for Facebook. Tim, this is really good news for Facebook, if they could pull this off. It's, it's, 
It's great news. Uh, and, and I have to say, as someone that's not necessarily been terribly bullish Facebook over the years, um, this is, seems like it could be a game changer. This is obviously still early stages of them. Uh, I'll use J.P. Morgan's term. The e-commercification of social platforms is a theme that they were looking at and something that clearly Facebook is doing here. Um, so when, when you look at the opportunity that they have with small, medium-sized businesses who really make up a, a lion's share, obviously they have a very strong retail presence, but um, that is where they are. And that is uh, a, a, a influential uh, and the critical part of the economy that I think they have uh, a line into. So I think this is very good news on opportunity. We need to see execution. But this is something that is in the aftermath of COVID-19 that Facebook should be taking advantage of. Karen? Yeah, I mean, I, we talked about it with Gene Munster on the day of earnings, which were, which were very good, about what is the next engine for them. And they've been sort of hinting at this for a while. It's not so surprising, but I was a little surprised by the timing. I think uh, diversification is good for them. The valuation, this is a, you know, it's pretty stretched here. The one thing that's sort of hanging over my head a little bit that I worry about is... Um, the antitrust litigation, which I thought was sort of dead post-COVID. And we saw from Google that it's, it's not dead, um, it's alive, although it didn't seem to, I mean, Google stock just, you know, sort of um, shrugged it off after one or two days. That weighs on me a little, but I, I am long and I am staying long. I think even with the valuation a little bit ahead of itself, um, I, I like that there's a new engine now. All right, coming up, a major pot deal lighting up the street. Our cannabis king is here. He'll break it all down for us right after this break. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Aurora Cannabis uh, spiking in the after-hour session. Frank Holland's got all the details on this deal. Frank. Hey there, Melissa. You know, shares of Aurora rising more than 32% after announcing a $40 million all-stock deal to buy U.S.-based CBD company Reliva. Relieve is the number two CBD retailer in the U.S. and has sold in more than 20,000 retail locations. That includes Circle K convenience stores. Also, all of its products are under $20, something the companies believe will be key in the current economic environment. Aurora Executive Chairman Michael Singer called it immediate access to the biggest market for cannabis-related products in the world and says this acquisition is a key part of the company's turnaround plan and near-term goal to reach profitability. Aurora shares, they're up more than 190% over the past week after reporting a smaller loss than expected during earnings last week. But you have to remember, the stock has lost about 90% of its value over the past year. Also, CBD prices, they've been under pressure recently, but this deal, it could be a lucrative long-term play. U.S. CBD sales are expected to reach $25 billion by 2025. Melissa, back over to you. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland on this uh, deal. We go straight to Tim Seymour on this. What's your take? I wouldn't be chasing this deal at all. I, I, frankly, I'm not excited about anyone saying they have a huge CBD strategy in the U.S., not because CBD is not the market uh, addressable that Frank talked about, but uh, this, this playbook has, has been tried over and over again. CBD companies, a lot of the producers uh, are, are struggling right now massively. Uh, CBD prices, biomass, all of it going way lower. So, And think about this deal. It was a $40 million deal that was done in all stock for a company who's down 90% and just did a 12 to 1 reverse stock split. 
Um, how, how valuable is the asset um, if that's the deal uh, that they were doing? I, you know, I don't mean to be so skeptical. Uh, I, the great news in cannabis um, are the numbers out of TrueLeaf, where they have 77 percent uh, gross EBITDA margins or GTI late last week or CureLeaf or uh, the macro that's actually making cannabis essential in this country uh, and deeming it essential. So that's the great news for cannabis, which, frankly, has been totally outperforming the market. And you would expect it to in an uptrend. But um, this is something that there are real fundamentals there. Um, I, I think I don't mean to poo poo this deal. Aurora has been a leader in the industry, but gone through some very painful times. And this is not a time where Aurora is going to be expanding dramatically in the U.S. This is a I think this is a tuck in deal done with stock and not something you should be chasing. Is it I don't want to say a waste because I think that's a little bit too strong. But is it um, I, I don't know. Should companies not be chasing in the CBD space at all simply because everybody and their brother has some sort of CBD product, and we still don't really know what sorts of regulations will come in this area. The, the FDA has is, is, uh, certainly been very slow to, to rule on where uh, CBD will be inclusive in food products and other additives. Um, if you think about what big investors th- think, they, you know, those investors in private equity that know about brands and CPG think about CBD as an ingredient. Um, it's something that will be some of the biggest players in the world who are lateral to this industry will probably be the major players in it. Uh, it doesn't mean that CBD is not interesting and it has been a, a vehicle for putting down U.S. roots for a lot of uh, cannabis companies to get the distribution. CureLeaf did a nice job with this. It gives you, uh, in a non-federal environment, the ability to get out there. But um, CBD sales are not going to move the needle. And as you said, it's ridiculously competitive and crowded right now. And I, I think that's something all investors should know. All right. Coming up, how options traders are playing the big moves in Moderna. Mike Coe is breaking it all down when Fast Money returns. We felt as a company, following obtaining the results which just occurred, that it was prudent for us to add to our resources and invest directly from our balance sheet into accelerating the, the, the preparedness we have to be able to produce large volumes of the vaccine. That was Moderna's chairman speaking on Power Lunch earlier today about his company's secondary offering on the back of positive coronavirus vaccine trial results that sent the stock soaring. The stock has been making huge moves this week. And over in the options markets, traders are betting those big moves are far from over. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike, what are you seeing? Hi, Melissa. So Moderna, obviously, on the back of all of this volatility, seeing some highly elevated options volumes. Today, we actually saw more than two times the 20-day average call volume. And the 20-day average call volume, I would point out, is itself an order of magnitude higher than what we had seen at any point prior to the COVID-19 pandemic-related trading activity. Most of the short-dated options activity we were seeing was in the weekly 75 and 80-strike call options. The buyers of the 75-strike calls were paying about $1.75 on average earlier today, but they ended up closing higher than that, around $2.40, because the stock closed not far off of the highs of the day. But I will caution folks, if you take a look out to the longer dated options, out to January and so on, we did see some institutional blocks, people buying puts, spending over a million dollars in premium there. So obviously the options market's betting on considerable volatility looking forward. Mike Coe uh, with the options action. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up next, we have the final trades. We're watching shares of Take-Two Interactive uh, on earnings. The stock is down by almost uh, 
well, more than 4% at this time, the after-hour session lows. It was a good quarter for Take-Two, but uh, it did hit all-time highs earlier in today's session. Time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. So let's talk about defense and aerospace stocks. Raytheon has certainly been one of the blue chips for a long time. They, through some spin-outs with Otis and Carrier, they've actually raised over $10 billion. They have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And I do think that, that the defense industry uh, is going to be ramping up. So this is a free cash flow positive story at a difficult time for a lot of companies. Check it out. Dan Nathan. Yeah, you know, great conversation on biotechs. I think we've just kind of discounted a lot of good news here. The IBB, I'd be a seller here. I think it's a massive double top. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, so Bob, I like it for the long term, but I also own some to trade that we were able to buy, in, I think it was May 4th, in the low 190s. So if the Chinese uh, rhetoric um, increases, which I think it will, I think it's okay to peel some off here. So I'm a seller of some Baba. Guy Dami. Mel, I know you have a tremendous memory. You may recall at the end of uh, April when AMD reported, we said if it gets back down around 50 and a half, 51, you buy it with both hands. Actually got lower than that, but here we are flirting with that $57 level. I think AMD breaks out to the upside. All right. Thanks for watching Fast, everybody. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.